Coaches, athletes, weekend warriors. Have you thought about recovery or regeneration? Today we oftentimes think in training about the stimulus we put on our body and the workload that we do to fatigue us daily, but we don't give enough to the recovery component. Simply Faster has numerous options to enhance your recovery in between the sessions of work that you put your body through daily. They have Theraguns, Normatic Regeneration Kits, and they're all cost-effective options. My athletes at my high school often use the Theragun in between intervals, race days, and training sessions. In the world we live in, it's hard to guarantee that we're going to get a doctor's visit. Simply Faster provides you the option where you don't have to be behind a paywall to get the care that you need with the equipment that they provide. So get yourself the regeneration and recovery that you need and level up. Simply Faster. Check it out. Welcome everyone to the Companions of the Companion podcast. Today I have Roland Schoolman who is here today with us for uh, a long conversation uh, that we're going to talk about a number of different things, a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, which I like to get stretched a little bit into different sports and uh, different avenues and different successful athletes. I'm completely humbled to have Roland with us today. Three Olympic medals, six world championships, 10 world records. I mean, you talk about a person who is very prolific, was in the 2004, 2008, 2012 Olympic Games. Um, he and I got an opportunity to bump shoulders while we were at the uh, Altus Apprentice Coaches Program. And it's kind of funny because, you know, here's Altus, this track and field program, and we have one of the world's best swimmers hanging out and wanting to learn and participate. And that's what really kind of intrigued me with, with you. And we kind of developed a friendship there because it's like, man, here is somebody who has succeeded in so many different ways and is still searching for secrets and opportunities and ways to be even better and even greater. Mm -hmm. So Roland, how you doing, buddy? Coach, fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. I mean, not only is it going to be a long conversation, it's a long, long overdue conversation as well. Absolutely. 100%. I know we've been trying to get together for a while and we've been busy and doing a lot of different things. So when we get started here, I, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about like the early part of, of your career and who really kind of mentored you and developed you into the, the swimmer that you were. And now looking mm -hmm. back on that, what were some of those things that you've learned that you would like to help push forward for other coaches and other swimmers through that mentorship? Yeah, I think one of the the primary things for me was never, I was really not focused on any one sport until I was 15 or 16. Um, I swam when I was, I started sort of learning how to swim when I was six years old. And about three weeks after I started, I quit. I, I played soccer, I did tennis, I did cricket, I did rugby, I played track and field. Oh, well, not played track and field. I, I did track and field. I played field hockey. So it's, I was just a, a sportsman. You know, I represented my state team in soccer. I represented my state team in, in cricket. So for me, just the school was sort of uh, an opportunity to go and do sport more than anything else. And in high school, you know, it wasn't until my third year in high school or second year, end of my second year in high school that I really started swimming. And my coach at the time, you know, um, Gavin Ross, uh, just an incredible man because he was very, he understood where his limitations were. He understood that he only had a certain amount of knowledge. And for me, you know, I, I don't know where 
where it came from, but the desire to always want to be my best, or, you know, I think there's always been perfectionist tendencies in there. So whatever it is that I've, I've ever undertook in my life, it's, there is no in between it's, it's zero to a hundred. I'm either, you know, fully committed or I'm not, you know, and, and that's the way it happened with swimming. I, I started swimming. Um, I, my Gavin, obviously, like I said, just knew that he didn't have certain strengths. So within that came uh, the purchasing of VHS videos, swimming world magazines, just any opportunity that I could in, to, to get better. So I think Gavin's openness to other systems, to learning, to understanding things was, was paramount in, in my development. Um, but then going on, getting a scholarship to swim at the University of Arizona, being in Arizona, having the opportunity to, you know, to swim under Rick DeMont, who was my primary coach, and Frank Bush, the head coach at the University of Arizona. I, I'd say they were you know, two significant mentors in my life as well. Um, just helped shape me, mold me, help me become you know the the person I am and and obviously a really good athlete that's a that's awesome thinking about all the different sports that you were a part of and what are do you feel like from a long-term development athlete model that you pulled upon some of those athletic experiences that allowed you to be at a higher level later because you had that various background through all those different sports I think so. I think the fact that I didn't specialize continued with the, the long-term athlete develop or just my long-term development. When, you know, I, I see a physical therapist here that used to work with Altus when they were here and listening to him talk about, you know, all the youngsters, 13, 14, that are, uh, you know, baseball stars, you know, and some of them 13, 14, having Tommy John surgery already. I mean, that's, that's too young to be getting, a surgery of that nature so it's just like so who wants it more and and in my experience it's the parents that want it these kids you know just they're a vessel you can mold them and okay yeah I, I guess I want to play baseball for me it was about my choice I kept on coming back to it over and over and over so I think that's a significant component that's hindering a lot of a lot of long-term capacity in all these athletes and 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 it's sad for me so it's you know I, I definitely want to do my part to to help create an awareness about it. So, I mean, we could argue that like, you know, with baseball, with Tommy John and with some of these people that have played soccer only for an extraordinary long time, or, you know, and I look at this overuse issue and as a track and field coach and a cross country coach, you know, that's one of my concerns as well is like, I don't want to be the guy that has the kids that only do my thing and I burn them out by the time they're ready to earn a college scholarship or reach their senior year, or, or God forbid, they don't continue when they get into college because of that experience. And with swimming, I mean, I, obviously that is a threat, right? Is this overusage injury because we are putting kids in the pool when they're five, six years old, and they do spend, you know, hours and hours a day, early morning, late evenings, often to get into a pool in the States with their head down in the water. So how is somebody like yourself, how did you overcome some of that stuff as you began to specialize in swimming? Yeah, it's just a good question. And just, I, you know, to completely answer the, your previous question, what I feel like I really gained from, from competing in many sports is, is a formation of my own identity. I had the opportunity to be an individual and participate in an individual sport. I had the opportunity to be 
an athlete and be in a team environment. And within each of those came different lessons, different requirements, different models for growth. You know, had I just been in swimming, okay, well, uh, amazing, great. You know, I, I'm sure if I had started when I was six and stayed on, you know, I could have been far, far more successful far earlier on, and maybe I would have won more medals. Maybe I wouldn't. Um, you know, but for me, really, the opportunity to participate, learn, grow, um, communicate, learn communication, um, learn to run properly, learn to throw properly. You know, all of these were, in my opinion, essential for helping develop me as a, you know, as a world-class athlete, um, you know. Michael Phelps didn't have any of those and look where he is. So, you know, you can argue both points, you know, but I believe that the best athletes or the best of any sport are the best athletes. I mean, you look at a guy like Caleb, Caleb Dressel at this point in time, he's an athlete. He's the fastest in the world. I believe he's, you know, the, the greatest swimmer we we've seen um, not to discount Michael Phelps and the medals he's, he's achieved, but I mean, Caleb Dressel is, is, spectacular in the things that he can do and his athleticism is is second to none um, in terms of swimming i think you know when when you see these overuse injuries we we work in a medium that doesn't give coaches generally generally the ability to see what's going on so what you can see as a coach is above water uh, if you're looking at any typical high school program any any typical club program a coach that's working with a senior group is probably coaching anywhere between 15 to 40, 50, 60 swimmers during any one given workout. So to be able to watch every single swimmer is, is pretty impossible. So you probably find that they do have their favorites and they're really helping them with their technique. Um, so a lot of the emphasis is placed on the recovery. What does it look like out of the water? There obviously it's a generalization, but there are amazing coaches out there that work one-on-one -on -one with each of their athletes that spend a certain amount of time doing certain drills, uh, video record their strokes underwater, uh, help emphasize their positioning in the water in terms of the way you want to catch the water. But for the most part, it's like, okay, well, if my swimmer looks pretty and swims pretty, they're going to be a fast swimmer. And it doesn't always work that way. Um, in my experience as well, when, when or coaches prescribe drills, whatever they are, you know, for me, the way I understand a drill is, if I need development in a certain area, you know, I'm going to break my stroke down into its simplest forms, maybe several progressions and, and work those progressions to help reinforce certain positions, um, you know, trying to accelerate in the wall, whatever it might be, however it's broken down. For me, it's, you know, I like to break it down as the simplest form, try and do progressions, but a lot of coaches just prescribe drills because, well, this is going to help your feel for the water. Well, okay, great. But if somebody's already strong in that position, you're negating where they're weak. And maybe that drill works perfectly for people, but then you also have to ensure that they're in the right positioning. So it's, it's almost an unseen type thing that, and by virtue of the fact that we swim lap after lap after lap, if you look at, you know, most swimmers, they're taking anywhere between 15 to 20 strokes per lap and you're doing you know 6000 yard workouts there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, a wear and tear on those shoulders when you especially if you're dealing with incorrect mechanics um if you've had no prehab um you know a, 
I feel very blessed to be able to go and, and teach and do a lot of swim clinics throughout the US. And, and a lot of people just, you know, they don't understand their bodies. They don't understand what they need to be doing. So those common questions are like, well, what is the best exercise? What should I do for stretching? And, and for me, it's like, I know what worked for me, but I haven't given you an assessment. I, I don't know where you're lacking, where you're strong. So if you're looking and you're committed to your own growth, your own development, get a team around you. See a physical therapist. Go see a trainer. Have them do various assessments, understand how you move, and give you the tools to move better, to, to strengthen the areas where you may, may be inefficient. Um, it's, it's just That's generally been my experience regarding it. So when we look at some of these things and, and coaches can see what they can see above water if they're not doing a lot of underwater recording and filming and, and things like that. And then, of course, there's always the issues of, you know, what's appropriate if you're coaching men and women and, and what you're taking film of and all this kind of stuff. And so for me as a coach, when I'm out on the track, you know, we're talking about a, you know, a, a, a vertical position of posture, right? Up and down against the ground in a surface that's not fluid, it's firm. And so when I am using my coach's eye, I tend to go from the hips up, hips down. And then if I can't figure it out from there, then I look at contact of the feet, then I'll turn and maybe get to the front of them or behind them. And I try to figure out where are these issues, you know? Mm -hmm. And then if everything seems to be technically sound like you said but we're missing some other component whether it is stroke rate or stroke length or we're taking too many breaths in the pool or we're only breathing on one side versus the other or we don't do well when somebody's ahead of us and we're riding their wake or we're not good out front so as a coach and when you do look at some of these people people that are new to swimming that are maybe new and they want to get involved in triathlons or they want to get involved in club level with youth or parents who just want to help their kid. Where do you start your evaluation on the athlete as you watch them? Is there a place you start with your coach's eye and work your way to one direction? What does that look like? Uh, yeah, it, it's definitely evolved to, you know, for me, I just, I like to watch, um, I like to see their positions, their position in the water. Is their head up high? Do they have good shoulder rotation? Are they connected in the water? Is there excessive body movement? Do they lift their head up um, and turn, rotate to the side to breathe? You know, how much excessive movement is there? Um, I, I like to be in the water. I like to see, you know, underwater what they are doing. So whether I'm actually in the water myself or you know using a gopro i think it's important to understand okay well what happens when my hand enters the water am i dropping my elbow am i able to stay in a high elbow catch position am i able to maintain that on the on the water uh, for an excessive period or ex you know a, a longer period of time than maybe you know you see it all the time somebody enters and they don't have the strength they don't even have the body awareness to be in that position drop their elbow and they end up slipping water. So slipping water is obviously a big thing for us because you want to be able to, if you think about, uh, if you look at somebody that's doing rowing, if you look at the rowers of the Olympics, if you know, their oar is in contact or the, the paddle's in contact with the water the entire time, if they were to all of a sudden, you know, turn it and have it be flat in the water and pull it out, okay, well, then you're losing 
your ability to accelerate to move forward we don't want that so if our arms like a paddle we want to be able to maintain the most optimal most efficient most powerful contact in the water for the entire stroke cycle so just being able to see that but i think the beautiful interplay of of what we do is exactly like you say it's and and what i loved about what coach dan paff used to say it always says is you know what else where else and the reality is that you know is it is it flexibility is it mobility is the strength issue is it a psychological mental issue is it a capacity issue you know it's just it's it's not it's not simple so i think for me the limited scope is you know what do they look like in the water uh, where are their major deficiencies um, you know even so simple as what do they look like on dry land so we'll I'll always have them move on dry land do some sort of dynamic warm-up and you can generally see you know from the first couple of minutes in the way people move the way they control their body their positions in the on dry land you know what it's going to be like in water it's very very rare that i've seen somebody that's you know just funky on dry land and be able to all of a sudden in the water they look absolutely amazing it's generally when you have that awareness and that control and that uh, that it, it carries over so it's definitely a dry land component to it not even dry land it's just movement you know what do they move like on dry land and what do they move like in the water i think those are the primary you know tools that i use at this point in time it's just the easiest thing to do so continuing con considering the cyclical nature of the sport and you mentioned like six thousand yards or, or whatever we're doing and all these different strokes and things like that do we find that there's a timeline when we do start to cue technical differences or we do start to address whether it's a flexibility issue uh, a technical issue a power output issue whatever these things are like what else where all this kind of the stuff that dan was talking about how long do you feel that coaches need to buy into the change that they're trying to make to get that athlete past that rough spot where there might be a little bit backwards in performance to break through to a better performance later. How do, how do you, how do coaches work through that in the pool? Because we're spending so much time doing these repetitive motions. How do we deal with that? The psychological aspect of it and the physical aspect and the length of time that it might take. I, it really depends. I don't think there is a right answer or there is one answer. Um, over the last several years, I've come to understand that the world isn't about black and white. It's There are significant areas in between. So one athlete, it really depends on the athletes you're dealing with. You might find an athlete that keeps hitting their head over and over and over again that doesn't maybe understand how to get into those positions. Um, but then you find the athlete that all of a sudden it, it clicks immediately. So I think as a coach, you know, for me, if I was coaching at, uh, you know, at a university or a school or whatever it is for me, I want to be open. And that's sort of why I went to Altus as well. It's because I'm, I'm open to learning. I, I want to understand the areas that, you know, I don't know because, you know, you hear it all the time. I don't know what I don't know. Uh, and for me to be able to increase that knowledge, even if it's just one lecture at a time, one class at a time, maybe going and attending something is is absolutely worthless for me but for me it's those little bit of nuggets that little bit of insight that i come away with um, so it's it really is athlete dependent um, i think when a when a coach is is comfortable in what they're doing they're confident in their programming that's the thing i i see some swim swimmers out there that have been with coaches that have no idea what they're doing 
but the and, and I'm, I'm sure you know it too but because yeah. they have this belief in themselves they have this belief in the program they have the belief in what they're prescribing their athletes buy into that as well so then we touch on the psychological side of things and and you know bruce lipton has a book the the biology of belief so it's just like that that interplay again you know, so you know, as a young athlete well maybe you aren't physically as much of a specimen maybe you have a certain amount of deficiencies but by virtue of the fact that you just believe you are and you're so confident in in that ability and you, you get away with it and i found certainly as you get older you know these huge gaps you know you have to start minimizing so maybe you can't get away with the loss of mobility maybe you can't deal with uh, a lack of strength in certain areas whatever it might be so I, I I don't know if there's a right answer to your question. I don't know if there's a wrong answer. I don't know if I've answered the question in in fact, but in my experience, it's, it just it depends. There is no one model for perfection or for each coach because you have so many different backgrounds, so many different athletes, so many different personalities. Um, it, it's, it's very, very difficult in my opinion. So, and I buy into that too. I mean, the all depends model, really, when you answer that it, initially, when younger coaches hear that, and I was one of those people as well, I'm like, just give me the flip and answers. I want the golden workouts, you know, and then once I get the golden workouts, I'll be great. And I'll just apply them verbatim mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And, and you and I both know that obviously that's not where excellence lies, right? Excellence lies in the ability to have what I would say is strategic agility and planning. And then as the athlete progresses, there are going to be things that become dominant in movement patterns that can be good for a while, but then maybe need to be adjusted later. And these are especially like in a sport that's so cyclical, like swimming, mm -hmm. where you're doing a lot of this stuff over and over again. You, you're right. I go to our high school swim practice and I'm just marveled at how does this coach coach this many people in the pool simultaneously and then you know in high school the the ability level is so different i mean you got kids right. that are just rec swimmers you know and then you got kids who are all state and you know competing at their junior national level and are pretty competitive you know we had when i was in high school we had a young man who made the olympic trials in the 100 free you know, which is one of the most competitive strokes in the world, you know, and here's this guy in a pool with somebody like me who barely floats. <laughs> so I guess here's what I would like to ask, though. There probably are things that we see in swimming that are maybe still done that are not ideal. Give us a couple of things that you feel like that are very common in the culture of swimming that as a person who's been at the very, very top and now is, is moving into mentorship and coaching and all this kind of stuff that you would like to see coaches avoid or move away from as people who are working with people in the pool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously I can only speak from my own experiences. And, and if I look at my time at Arizona, the thing is I can look at my time at Arizona and say what we did was too much. And I, and I think that there you know, is an innate understanding that, yeah, it may have been. But then again, I also broke 10 world records. I won three Olympic medals. So was it that wrong? Uh, you know, just so it's maybe it's up to other people to to judge or come up with their own beliefs on, on what I was doing. But to give you an understanding, we would train Monday morning. We'd be in the water from six to eight o'clock. 
So we'd swim anywhere between three and a half to five and a half thousand yards. Um, we'd go to school. We'd be back at the swimming pool. Generally by 1.30, we'd be on the pool deck at 1.45. We'd start some form of core medicine ball type workout for about, you know, 45 minutes or so. We'd be in the water by roughly about three o'clock. And then we'd be in the water from three o'clock all the way until about 4.45, 5 o'clock, anywhere again between 5,000 to 6,000 yards. So we're looking at anywhere between, you know, say 8,000 and 12,000, 13,000 yards of swimming just on a Tuesday. Um, beginning, you know, early season, Thursday or Tuesdays come along. We're looking at, you know, it's 105, 106 degrees down in Tucson. We do a long run on a Tuesday. So we're looking at long runs anywhere between three and five miles, six, seven miles of running. Um, then that's followed up by, you know, that's followed up by another swimming session. Uh, that's a, once again, 3,000 to 5,000 yards. Uh, Wednesdays, once again, it's very similar to a, a Monday. So Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays were always similar. And Tuesdays, Thursdays, very, very similar as well. Um, another running component that was usually intervals or stadiums followed by swimming. And uh, Saturdays were always like the long work out of the day. We'd be in there from eight o'clock to about 10.30. So we'd do, you know, once again, anywhere between five and 7,000 yards. And, you know, we had three days of, of weights a week. And those were typically Tuesday, Thursdays, Saturdays. So those were always before the running for most of us. So, I mean, within that, that's, that's a lot of yardage. You know, and um, the model we had was where, you know, uh, you really you're going let's say 50,000 yards the first week then 60 70,000 the second week so a bit of a progressive overload then we're looking at our tapers our rest period being anywhere between four to six weeks of decreased volume increased intensity to get to the best performances that we had you know but we had to rely on four to six weeks for our bodies to fully recover and the way I see things now is if your body needs four to six weeks to recover, you know, are you really maximizing your ability to perform in the swimming pool, every single workout as a sprinter? You know, I remember every, every year we'd get back from the NCAAs and, uh, you know, most of us weren't able to finish our races very strong. So the, the beginning of our races, I think we were all really, really good, but, you know, the second half was a bit of a struggle. And every single year we'd get back and be like, we haven't done enough distance. We haven't, haven't done enough distance. And, you know, and I, I bought into that and, and I, I, you know, I didn't for a long period of time and, and bought into it. And, you know, from there really had most of my success, but I do question it. I wonder if we'd spent more time working at or above race pace for longer periods of time, learning how to sustain that output because as a sprinter, you have to be able to maintain your output for, you know, the shortest is 21. I mean, if you're swimming yards, you're looking at 18 to you know, 19 seconds low for to be competitive in the hundred. In terms of yards, you're looking at you know, 40 seconds to 41, 41 and a half seconds. So 
you know, at most in a long course, 50 meter and 100 freestyle, obviously looking at 21 seconds and 47 or 48 seconds. So how do I maximize my ability for my body to have sustainable or max sustainable output for 21 seconds and 48, 40 seconds? Well, I don't think it's by going at heart rate 130, 140, 150 for one and a half hours and 6,000 yards. You know, it's, can I teach my body what that feels like? repeatedly and you really simulate the conditions more than anything else and i don't know if there's a right answer to it that, that's just my experience i know the um, michael andrew um, he's a he's a young swimmer uh, they adopted this model called usrpt um, which means ultra short race pace training and uh, Dr. Russell that sort of came up with this idea is very, very opinionated. I had a interaction with him and, and his belief is you don't, you don't kick, you don't do pulling, you don't do drilling because there's no direct correlation between speed. So all you do is you either swim really, really slow and don't do a lot of it, do a little bit of warm up, and then you perform, you know, race repetitions uh, for a specific distance. So you, you know, it was always like a, a two to one you know, ratio of, of output versus rest. And then you just do that over and over and over again. And when you reach one or two failures in a workout, then you're done for the workout. You know, and uh, there's no place for strength training because there's no direct correlation. So anything for him that was, if there's, you know, if there isn't a direct correlation, well, you're not, you shouldn't do it. And uh, that was Michael Andrew and his father's, you know, approach to it a lot. But I think over time, you know, once again, they understood that it's not black and white. So they've started incorporating additional components where he'll go surfing, you know, for, for a little bit of capacity to, you know, he's out there for two, three hours and he's catching waves. So he's sprinting and cruising. So his heart rate's never, you know, it's just sustained for a period of time. And so they're doing weight training now. They still, their primary model in the swimming pool is, um, is this USRPT model that they, I think they may have adapted certain components. But when you look at him race, the, the front half of his races are all amazing. But his ability to sustain that for an extended period of time isn't there. So, and I, I believe in my personal opinion that it's because of the fact that he hasn't really spent a lot of time building an aerobic capacity. You know, so it's, you know, when you look at him compete day in and day out over many days, you know, he, his performances generally get slower and slower, um, generally. Um, and I think it's just because his body doesn't have enough yards under him. Um, so I don't, do you have to do 6,000 yards of swimming at threshold day in and day out to develop that? Maybe at certain points in certain phases of a year, um, you know, I, I, may, I think it's a good idea. Um, is it something you should do all the time? Probably not. But for me, if, if I can't be at or above my race pace repeatedly, you know, that's, that's, then there's something wrong. And I think that's largely the US-based system. You know, not just a US-based system. If you look at the way... That, the Australians have done things. A lot of them, it's like, well, can I stand up, get on the blocks today and be within 10% of my best time? If you can't, well, then, then there's a problem. 
you know, I've, and for me, <laughs> there was no way I was getting in within, you know, 30% of my best times. Like I'd look at the increment or the significant drop of times uh, before the 2004 Olympic games going into the, before the, or just before the Olympic games, we had a, a test event. We had a, a meet that was our last meet of the year before we, we participated in the games. And in the 50 freestyle, I was 22.5 or 22.6 in the hundred freestyle. I was 50.1 or 50.2. And in the hundred freestyle, I dropped two seconds between the olympics and that's a and huge that drop too I don't, it's people significant yeah listen to the track numbers like you guys who are track folks that that's a huge drop anyway continue sorry yeah no no but i mean if we're if we're swimming at just over if we're swimming probably like 2.2 meters per second i mean you're looking at roughly five meters of difference which is is huge and in the 50 freestyle also it dropped about a second so i mean it's you know can i could I have been a better athlete? Could I have been faster and, and one more? Maybe. Could I have been worse off if I'd done one model versus the other? Maybe. Um, so I, I definitely, I've come to understand that there are places for both sorts of training. Is there a need as a, like, I believe I became a really good swimmer because my coach in high school really didn't oversprint me initially. His goal for me was to become a distance swimmer, to swim the 400 or middle distance specifically, to be a really good 400 meter freestyler. Because that's what all my VO2 max testing and everything suggested that I was capable of. It really didn't suggest that I was going to do that uh, well in sprinting. But over time, you know, the more we trained for the 400, I really didn't improve in the 400 very much. But my 50 time and my 100 time came down significantly. So maybe me as an athlete with my system, it requires maybe a little bit more aerobics work than other people would who may require a little bit more anaerobic capacity or lactate tolerance work. So it's, you know, I, th that's why I just keep on wondering and thinking and, okay, well, if this, you know, what fits into this part of the puzzle, into this recipe, you know, I, I use the analogy as like a chocolate chip cookies. You know, you, you can't just put a chocolate chip down and be like, haha, it's a chocolate chip cookie, because it's not. You know, there are other ingredients that are required to make it something special, to make it something that everybody loves. And it's like, what are all these ingredients? And the reality is maybe somebody doesn't like chocolate chip cookies. Maybe somebody, <laughs> somebody doesn't like cookies at all. You know, maybe right. they're an ice cream fan. Mm -hmm. Well, then there are different ingredients that go into their ice cream craving. So to, to have a myopic focus and one ideology about a system for a significant, significant group of people is, you know, I, I think it's doing a disservice to the significant variance that exists. Amazing stuff. So my mind is like on fire. I'm thinking about like currently in high school track and field, we have a discussion. There's a philosophy which is very much like the usrpt which is called feed the cats limited warm-up very few reps nothing over a certain distance 10 meter flies at a very very high maximum velocity efforts little acceleration work little uh actual traditional weight training a decent amount of plyometrics and some like recovery agility work and things like that and then the criticism of that system is, but we look at how sustainable is that? 
people are pulling hamstrings. Um, they're not necessarily getting the output that you would want in some of the other sprint events. And as a high school coach, you need to cover the basis of the 19 events in some states. They have 19 events for a team. And so you get two competitors in each one of those events and four on the relays. So that's like, well, now you need 30 plus kids to fill out your roster. And how do you know where they're at now and where Mm -hmm. they're going to develop? So one of the things that's really interesting, which ties into what you're talking about in your experience, starting out as a 400 meter swimmer, which by the way, everyone who's a track person, if you look at 400 meter swim and you look at the world records in those times, are very similar to the fastest times run in a 1600. Okay, so everything is four times the distance. So for a 50 free person, you're looking at 400 meter dashed, you know, or 50 free is 200 meter dash. Exactly. For 100 meters is like a 400 meter dash. Right. And so the energy systems are similar. And my question that I always have in my head is, does it have to be this binary, this or that? Like we're going high, high volume. And then these other people are going at it with like, oh, we're going to cut out all this essential stuff. And I think, shouldn't there be a phase where you do that? And then you do another phase where you look at something called block training or Mm -hmm. what I really like, which is my friend out in Australia, he's got this thing called the concurrent system. Mm -hmm. And so what he's doing is every couple of weeks, he's ticking all the boxes. And then he goes back to a general prep where they build up that aerobic system to then support ticking all the boxes again in all of these different energy systems and abilities. And I know that as swim coaches, it's hard for us because we have all these people in the water. It is difficult to communicate. How do you manage the people that are behind in the lane, you know, and you've got the faster lanes and the slower lanes and people are, you know, you get the, oh, how do I call it? A, a bottleneck in training at times if people aren't hitting their pace. And so I know it's, it's difficult, but for me, I always think like there are probably a good blend of what that is. And then going back for you, sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, here. please. Yeah. But but the 400 meter dash that your 400 meter swim that you were doing. And I look at Fred Curley, who's out there in the track and field world. Right. And everybody said, he's crazy. Exactly. Why is he going to the 100 and 200? He hasn't done this. And it's like, but he has the talent and he has the ability. And lo and behold, he's moved his way down and he's just as successful. Or I look at, um, I'm going to be talking to Ronnie Baker next mm-hmm. week, who's one of the fastest hundred meter men in the world. And he ran cross country when he was a little kid, but then he spent a lot of time sprinting, you know? So he's had these blocks in his life where you're doing different things, but you transition. And the other thing I think Roland, which we have to talk about is some people have um, genes that allow certain systems to adaptate more over time. And some people don't. So like you had this great aerobic system, but then also as you started to race competitively in the pool, you're getting the adaptations from that more speedier work that then really, uh, how do I say this? Your body goes, Ooh, what is this? And it makes these huge gains in that area because your body's like, I really like that. I want to see that. I I get benefits from that. Mm -hmm. You know, just hearing your story, I'm just like, Oh my God, there's, there's this system, right? There are, there are these things where I look at like Michael Andrew, who I was, when we were off, when we were talking before our our conversation, I'm like, he, he had this interesting style of, of, you know, sprint, sprint training to the pool. And I'm like, that's great. But like you said, he was missing the back half. So it's like, why couldn't you have a week 
where you do the USRPT, and then you have a week where you train more on the endurance end. And then when you're talking about doing the surfing, I look at that as on the track, that's like fartlek training. So you have mm -hmm. speed play, right? Where you're going fast and slow over certain yep. distances. And that's a benefit as well, because if a person starts to pull away from you on the pool or gets a good push off the wall, you might have to train, change your stroke rate or, or whatever you're doing to try exactly. to get yourself back in the pool. And why aren't we doing that variety of things throughout our plan all the time concurrently mm -hmm. what are your it, thoughts yeah i think there's a lot to unpack there I, I think i think the best coaches in the world or most of the really good coaches in the world are probably doing that you know whether it's innately or by virtue of of learning understanding um i think this myopic focus this division is endemic of of society in general if you look at um you know it, it where we are now you know it's you're you're either pro-vax or you're anti-vax well it's not that simple you know but yet we create this division and so it's been that way in sport as well well you're either distance-based or you're sprint-based well no, you're not. There can be so many areas in between. And I think a lot of people see things so black and white. And I can speak from a place of, of knowing that because I was there for, you know, the vast majority of my life. And it's only over the last several years that I've started really evolving the way I've thought. And, and I've really come to see that if, if you as a coach are, are unable to take in a, another person's a, a, and not just in coaching, in life in general, if you're unable to look at somebody else's view without having a knee-jerk reaction or um, seeing fault in it or whatever it is, you are not secure as a coach or a person, as a human being in your, really, uh, in your real belief system. Because if, if you as a, hypothetically, you're as a coach and you're a distance-based coach and somebody comes into you and say, you know what, I, I really feel like, you should add a little bit more swimming or sprinting in there and maybe some weight training. And you come back and you're like, well, F you, buddy. What do you know? If, you know, <laughs> but that's the reality. And, and, you know, these coaches that are, are really the best coaches and the best mentors and the best people to be around, like we experienced at Altus, are really like, that's interesting. Why do you say that? you know, it's, it's the willingness, the openness to understand, maybe there's a, maybe there's nothing behind what this person is going to say. Maybe it's a waste of your time, but maybe there's a nugget. Maybe there's an insight that you can draw from that will be, you know, open you up to, man, I, I didn't think about that. That's a really interesting view. And, and it had, if you hadn't said anything, I might not have, you know, been aware of it. But most of us are in so insecure about what we're doing and uh, maybe it just comes from a place of uh, yeah I, I don't know I, I don't know where it's from but then we talk about models and the biomechanics if you know the me changing from a 400 down to a 50 and 100 I mean if you look if you look at Usain Bolt's running style his form his positions from when he started to when he ended they're vastly different same athlete it's completely different. Well, not completely different, but there are differences in there. So to think an athlete is going to stay the same for the duration of their career in their ability to move, 
Well, I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, show me one athlete that, you know, if you look at Tom Brady, he's been, I mean, really good for a while. And if you, it, he doesn't look the same now as he did. He doesn't throw the same now as he did. Are there fundamentals that are in place that are the same or similar? Absolutely. But are there components of it that have changed over time? Absolutely. Has he adapted? Sure. You know, so do we negate that in an athlete and their long-term development? Okay, well, this athlete looks this way. They're going to always look this way. When three years from now, when they don't look that way anymore, we don't know, well, we need to get back to that place where you look that way. Okay, well, what else? Where else? Why all of a sudden are you in these positions? Is it because that's just where you are now naturally as an athlete? Is it more advantageous? It's, uh, it's interesting. It's, and I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> No, you're it's great. I've been going so, on a rant. <laughs> no, I mean it, it's it's this idea of the interplay of maybe some various philosophies that should be blended together to create what I would say is a globally improved athlete. And what I think that's what we're kind of touching on in terms of Definitely. our stream of consciousness here. And when you mention like different techniques and mechanics, and you know, I people are like, why do running mechanics drills, right? And they're like, because the technique is locked in, they're cyclically doing this over and over and over again. And, you know, they, it doesn't show a lot of improvement. And I'm like, well, first of all, I want them to be more mobile. Second of all, I, I want to inoculate them that if they do take a funny step or a funny movement in practice, that they can survive it and not get hurt to, to, to not have unplanned breaks in training. I want to be able to stack stimulus on stimulus on stimulus over mm -hmm. a longer period of time where there isn't forced inaction. The other thing I look at is in terms of the articulation of certain muscles and strengths, and I want to increase the firing pattern of those movements and make them more aggressive. That's all true. Then you can also say that some of these drills, when we look at technical work, you can spot problems, you can spot injuries, you can spot, um, how do you say the activeness, the, um, uh, the arousal of the athlete is something wrong? Do they look flat? So there's all this value to that. And then if you stack those things over time, you don't notice it changing day to day, but you go back years and then look mm -hmm. at where they're at now. And you could see a wildly positive benefit. Tom Brady looks better physically as an athlete now than when he entered the NFL 20 years ago, he Absolutely. looks better. He looks younger, you know, and everybody can make wild accusations and all this nonsense, but he is stuff that he is doing to perform on the field of play technically and his management of the game and the, the abilities that he has. It's, it's a, it's a lesson to be learned for other athletes. And then in a sport that's power-based alone, the hundred meter dash, I've talked about this actually on the Altus mentor group that they have with the coaches. I, I said, look at Shelly Ann Frazier price when she was in 2008 in the Olympics, she looked like a little kid running down the street, curved back, head back, no front side mechanics, everything that you would not want a very fast person to do because Hey, they could probably get hurt and they're just not maximizing their ability. Go 16 plus years later. Right. And Shelly Ann Fraser Price in Doha is upright, running with great front side mechanics, popping off the ground, covering a lot of distance, has amazing posture. And people go, I don't understand how she's still this fast. It's like, because she's continued to improve her technical capacity, 
while maybe mother nature is wanting to slow her down in other ways she's making up the difference by moving more properly being better that's at it. what she does so that's it yeah, yeah i mean i'm 100 in agreement with you it's can we foster a system that is open to athletes taking responsibility because and responsibility in the sense that i mean you look at these athletes they're consummate professionals tom brady eats lives and sleeps what he does you know from his diet to his stretching to you know there's no i mean whether it's lebron james or whether it's tom brady you look at the significant investment that takes place in their bodies every single year there's it's not a you know there's a reason why they're as good as they are it's not an accident it's not a fluke um, for me i was very very fortunate that you know by being with the right coach and just by my upbringing, understanding things at the fundamental level was, was always important. I mean, maybe it comes from watching MacGyver as a kid. You know, MacGyver would, you know, just he had to create things from nothing. And, you know, I, I was always fascinated by that and always fascinated by electronics. Um, like I'd get a radio and I'd take it apart. So I wanted to understand how things worked at their most basic level. And, you know, can we, and, and maybe that's extreme. I'm not saying every single athlete out there needs to be you know, that pedantic about what they do and, and that perfectionist in, or in, in what they're doing. But I think can, can we as a system, as, as coaches, foster a place where athletes are, you know, take the initiative, can be creative enough, are, you know, focused on their own development, um, being their own best coach because, and that's what I tell kids in all these clinics that I do is you're in a system, you're in a program where you want a 40, 50, 60 people. And it's great. Um, you might, you're probably getting what you need in the water, but there's so many other areas where you're not getting growth or, you know, they or maybe not seeing the improvement that you need to see. So can you as an athlete take the initiative? Can you, you know, be committed to your growth, whether you wanting to swim to get to college, whether you want to go to the Olympic trials, whether you want to go to the Olympics, you know, can I do everything within my capacity? Do, can I sleep better? Can I recover better? Can I eat better? Can I train better? Can I think better? You know, it's not, and a lot of us just rely on the coaches. Well, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And that's great. That makes for somebody that, that could be a really good coachable athlete and, and i think there's a, a huge benefit to being that at points but i also think there's a point where an athlete can say okay explain to me why we're doing that and going back to the you know coaches and their insecurity you know if if an athlete asks me why are we doing something i mean i think coaches understand if, if a kid is you know innately questioning and just but if, a, if an athlete generally or sincerely wants to know, okay, well, why are we doing this? Explain it. And if you can't explain to an athlete why you're doing something, well, then you need to revisit your model. Because I can explain to every single kid why I, that I've ever worked with, well, this is why we're doing this specific drill. This is why we're doing this specific thing. Um, whether we're working on the mental side of things, this is why we're doing it. This is where the benefit's going to be. So, you know, can we get athletes that take ownership of their own careers because brady did the best athletes in the world do you know it's i i don't know any athlete that just 
happenstance became an Olympic gold medalist. Like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm an Olympic gold medalist. And I just did everything that I was ever told and didn't question it. And yeah, amazing. You know, so that also negates the individual side of things. So it's, yeah, I just, from my experience, it's like, can, can I help foster and facilitate that? Because I think a lot of coaches don't, don't question me. Don't ask me why we're doing things. When I tell you to do it, you're going to do it. Is that, well, how high should I jump kind of thing? So it's, um, yeah. And once again, it's, it's a generalization. I'm not saying that is how every single program in the US or the world is, but I, I'm saying that there are probably a vast majority of the programs are, are in fact impacted and affected by that. Yeah, and it, what I always love to tell my kids we can make you good. You decide whether you're going to be great because mm -hmm. the ownership of what you have to do to be great happens away from us. You have a lot of responsibility. I mean, you know, now as swimmers, you guys are seeing your coaches way more than almost any other sport. They're spending a lot of time sitting on that pool deck, watching mm -hmm. your head in the water or doing stuff on the side, dry land training all that kind of stuff. But, you know, most of us were looking at, hey, you're with us for two hours a day, maximum, you know, maybe two and a half. And then the 21 and a half hours a day or 22 and a half hours of the day, you're away from us. So there's a lot of other things you've got to take care of to decide whether you're going to be great. And you're right. Every one of the great athletes I've worked with, I had a young lady who set the high school record for 5,000 meters as a high schooler. And then that was taken by Mary Kane, uh, who was, you know, with the Oregon project and, you know, all this kind of, we know, like she went through a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, she's now built her own professional team and her story is kind of a, a tragic one that hopefully will have a silver lining when she is able to help so many other athletes mm -hmm. do things the right way. And for me, I love it when a kid asks me questions about what we're doing. Cause it's like, yes, I get to tell them why we're doing it. And, mm -hmm. and for me, with the beginning of the season, I explain, Hey, this is why we're yeah. outside today, even though the weather sucks, because you know, you're going to have to compete in these conditions. This is an outdoor sport. Hey, this is why we have short recoveries today. Cause we're trying to build up waste product and I'm trying to build your buffering system so that you can tolerate this stuff in a competition. Hey, this is why we're doing this many intervals, because when you go to a track meet, you're going to run this many races and you have to warm up and you have to cool down. So you have to have a certain amount of capacity to have success within the requirements of the competition, not just the individual race. Mm -hmm. um, hey, this is what we're trying to build here for your body, this elastic component. This is why we want you to cool down. This is why we're doing these things in the weight room. Here's the adaptations that we expect. I don't want to give them a big biology lesson, but I give them right. a brief overview. And then when kids talk to me about like, hey, what do you think about barefoot running? Or, you know, what do you think about Olympic lifting or powerlifting? Or what do you think about the uh, feed the cat system, which is this low volume. It's basically the track version of the USRPT. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a chance to, to discuss those things. And as coaches, don't be afraid of that. That is excellent and awesome. But if you don't have the answer why you're doing this, then that is a concern. You need to know why. And if you don't, it's a huge problem. Now, right. speaking specifically to you and talking about, because again, as a swimmer, you're spending a lot of time alone with certain senses 
being a little bit dulled because we're in the water we're 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 face down um we're in a, in a pool that's typically pretty noisy you know when everybody's in there competing or you've got a bunch of people practicing at the same time so the mental game of swimming at the highest level i think is so critical because the separation in swimming might be the tiniest of any sport between first place and eighth place in an olympic final or world championship so talk to us about your mental game because i was showing my daughters like hey i get the opportunity to talk to this guy he's a stud he's a world champ he's got world records and they're like oh i want to see a picture of him and i have this picture of you where you're at the bottom of the pool like in this buddhist zen yeah. state which is this really cool image of you and they're like oh my gosh look how strong he is i'm like yes i said but what made him great was obviously he was a physically fit guy i said but up here he was always ready and so talk to us about how you got yourself into that headspace to be able to manage those expectations and perform at a world record level over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was something that changed throughout my career. I, I think when I was when I started swimming, it was uh, for me, I was coming from a place of I have to be perfect. I have to, you know for whatever reasons, you know, growing up compensations, what have you, you know, for me, it was like, I have to win. I have to win. It's like, I hated losing. It didn't matter what I did. I, I, I hated losing with an absolute passion. I saw it as a failure. And so it, it really, it was this black and white. You either win or you're failing because second place is not winning. You know, and, and that was just the attitude that I had growing up. So it's like, if I finish second, you know, it was like, that's not good enough. I have to win. So there continued to be this, you know, when I got to college, you know, I was my own worst critic. You know, it's just like the stuff I'd say to myself, if, if the workout wasn't going the way I wanted it to go, if I wasn't swimming times that I wanted to go, it's like you effing this, that, and the next thing, you piece of shit, whatever, you know, just all these things, just, you know, forcing myself into a corner. And I think that's when I performed really, really well. And the coaches knew it as well. It's, it went into conference my freshman year. They didn't want to, um, they didn't want to rest me. They didn't want to shave me. They wanted to see if I could qualify for the NCAAs. And, you know, the head coach came to me, he's like, Roland, we're not shaving you. We're not staying around for that last chance meet tomorrow. You need to qualify because we need you at NCAAs. If you don't qualify, you know, well, then what's the point kind of thing? And they, they knew. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, F that. I'm, I got to step up and stop being a pussy and whatever it is. And, and that was really my attitude. So it was, you know, and that, that continued throughout, um, throughout my swimming career, really to and sort of change towards the end. But I hated losing. You know, for me, that was the bane of my existence. If I lost, I was a failure. And I, you know, I look at second place medal or getting second at the Olympics in the hundred meter freestyles. If you, if you'd spoken to me the, the week or two days before the Olympics in that hundred and said, Hey, would you be happy to walk away from this Olympics with a, a silver in the hundred freestyle? I mean, like, Oh, heck yeah. I would have, I'd be really stoked with the silver medal, but then I won silver and I wasn't happy. You know, I was like, this is a failure. You suck. You're useless. You know, and it's just, it's just that really, really plagued me. Um, 
you know, I think there was a huge amount of benefit, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a level of tolerance, a level of compassion for, you know, just my human side. There was a level of expectation on myself that was above what anybody else believed was, you know, was good. And I think that there was a certain benefit to that, but there was a trickle down effect to that. It's like, well, I expect this level from myself. I expect this level from everybody around me. You're going to be on my team. You're going to be on my relay. You need to step up. You need to be at this level. And I think it's, you know, some people you bring up to that level and a lot of people you lose friends because nobody wants to be around the person that's ultra intense, that has to win under all circumstances. And, you know, so it was sort of seeing that and understanding how deeply unhappy I was as, as a human being and, you know, as an, as an athlete, you know, when, you're happy when you win and you're sad when you don't. And most of the time, you know, frequently you don't win, you know, even especially for us when we are not, when we're not rested, but it, it was, it was difficult. I think it's, you know, it always sort of, for me, I understood how important the mental component was. And I'd seen and been on teams with athletes that were, incredible swimmers and the stuff they could do in workouts was second to none but then they'd step up for a, a race and they'd suck now you've done everything in the swimming pool you know and in in training to be able to go to ncaa's and place at ncaa's but then you go to conference and you don't even qualify you know so a lot of it just i've always been once again it just the being in the process, the, the pieces of the puzzle, the ingredients, uh, psychology has always been intriguing to me. I studied psychology in, in, in college. That's what I got my degree. in. so to understand the physiology of things, the psychology of things, I, I knew if I was mentally tougher than anybody else, you know, maybe I wasn't the most talented. I knew I was very talented, but I knew if I worked very, very hard, I knew if I was mentally tougher and stronger than people, well, you know, then uh, I was going to beat them. Um, but once again, there are the costs to that. Could I be in a happier, faster athlete? Sure. Because if things didn't go my way in the beginning of a swimming, if I all of a sudden got second or third or didn't do what I was thinking, well, you count me out for a session or so until I can, you know, get myself to, to snap out of that. Um, if I'd you know, sort of this idea and this ideology of can I be, can I care so much about it, but can I be unattached with, to the result? You know, that breeds, you know, a lot of fast performances. When you look at the way people for, perform on relays, when all of a sudden it's not about them, you know, that takes the me out of it, the I out of it, uh, and becomes the, the we, the team. Then all of a sudden you see people doing things they've never done before because, well, all of a sudden I have people around me that we can be jovial. There's a sense of camaraderie. Um, I don't have to just be focused on, on this thing that is so daunting. That is my race and my experience. And a lot of people get wrapped up in that. For me, I always thrived in it. I wanted the competition. I wanted to race. It was just, I was born to race. I was absolutely born to race. That was my strength. So it's, you know, a lot of people don't have that. So can, once again, in the system, not everybody's going to be like that. We can't even advocate for that in everybody, but can we help facilitate a system 
where these different personalities are allowed to be authentically themselves, you know, but, you know, I think the way my real system or belief system has changed is I, you can I go out, give my best every single time and what happens with the results that's going to take care of itself. If I get, if I don't win, okay, well, that's feedback. It's a loop. Well, you know, you look at athletes and their performances and you look up and you see a time and you're upset or you're really, really happy. Well, it's not that simple. What goes into that? What did my training look like going into it? Have I been sleeping well? Have I been eating well? Have I been stretching? Um, what does race day look like? What did my warm-up look like? Did I do everything I needed to do in warm-up? Well, then what was I thinking? What did my start look like? Or not look like, but what was my start? How was it? Was it powerful? Was it not? How was my underwater phase? How was my breakout phase? How was the first 25 of my race? How was my approach to the wall? How was my turn? How were my underwaters from the wall? So it's all these ingredients, you know, and for me, it was like, win happy, lose failure. Instead of, you know, we, we have this human response, which is beautiful and, and it's authentic and I'm okay with that. But I tell kids, you know, be human, be authentic for five minutes, but then forget about it. Well, not forget about it, but then start analyzing. Okay, well, where could I have done better? Hey, coach, what did I do? Where, you know, walk me through your race. Okay, well, this was your experience. Okay, well, this is my experience for having been in the race. But this is what I noticed. This is what I felt. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. Well, then there's an action plan. Okay, so then you become far more you know, about the process of it, the process of the development than the, than the goal. If, if you're just fixated on that goal, well, you know what? You're going to win an Olympic medal and that's not going to solve the world's issues. It's not going to make you happy, which so many athletes believe. When I reach the pinnacle of my career, when I reach it, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> it's like the idea, you know, when I die, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be happy. <laughs> it's like, well, what happened to the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 <laughs> years of time that you were on earth? Well, right. were there not moments of happiness in there? It's like, can I be so focused on the process in my development and understand that the results will take care of themselves. You know, if I've done all of these things in between, rest assured, I can go to a meet and, and I can race well. And for me, you know, it's like, I wish I'd had that opportunity for more, but for more meets to go in and be like, Hey, you know what, what happens happens. I'm not attached to the result. Do I want to win? Absolutely. Am I going to do everything in my power to win gold? Amazing. Are there going to be opportunities, you know, are there going to be faults in the race? Maybe. Am I going to try and minimize those? Absolutely. But if I don't win, okay, take the opportunity to understand why that happened instead of, for me at least, being like, well, you suck, you're a failure, you're a piece of this, that, and the next thing. Yeah, it's, I tell my athletes all the time, either we win or we learn. We don't win and lose. We, we win or we learn. You, you get information back. You get an understanding. And the same thing in my classroom, I try to tell my students like, hey, it's okay to be wrong right now. Make, you know, when I ask you a question and you don't have necessarily the right answer, just be brave and give me something that you think that you can provide to the class. And then if you're wrong per se, then we're learning. The only time I don't want right. you to be wrong is on the quiz or the test. And I want you to be prepared for that. And I want you to know what's coming. And I want to reward you for your work. And to the listeners, 
hearing Roland talk about all this stuff, I will, you know, go back and, and rewind and then listen to all of the things he mentioned that he had on his boxes that he's trying to tick off or check off in terms of the things that he was doing right in the event, before and after the event. And when you create that template for yourself, now you have somewhere to go to learn from what had taken place and then attack from what you've learned so that mm -hmm. you can go back and address the concerns, the issues, the performances. And the other thing coaches is like, sometimes, you know, an athlete's looking for immediate feedback after they get out of the pool or they step off the track or off the mat or the runway or court or whatever sport they're doing, you might not have an answer for them right away. And especially in a sport like swimming and track, give yourself some time, say, Hey, I know this happened. This isn't exactly maybe what you wanted, but give me a night to think about what right. has happened, what has gone on. Give me a chance to look through my logs, what we did in training and what you did in practice. And then you can go back and think about these things too and go through your checklist. And then we can have a conversation that's going to be a lot more productive than, hey, you didn't do this right or you didn't do this right. well, you know, and your immediate reaction. Because sometimes, I mean, I'm sure you know this as well as anybody else you think something happened in the event and then you go back and you look at the film or you pay attention to what happened. And it's like, Oh, actually that was okay. But right. here's the issue that led up to the problem, maybe backtracking it, retroing it, you know, to some other part of the performance that was actually the real issue. Definitely. I mean, feel yeah. versus real is this significant. So if you have the luxury um, afforded you to be able to watch film and I, I think it's, it's an, it's a very important thing. Absolutely. And the thing I think about, too, is you mentioned like some people that can really just do great workouts and, and then they, we get to competition and there's this overload of arousal, you know, and they mm -hmm. and they can't handle it, you know, and I know that there's a lot of controversy right now out there with um, people talking about the warrior gene versus the thinker gene and the other I don't know, stigmas attached to that. But the reality is, is that we all know that that thing you just explained, some people can rise to the level and love to race and love to put themselves up against the best people. They almost giggle in the performance because it's, it's so exciting. And then there's other people who dread it, you mm -hmm. know, and are afraid and worried. And, and so as coaches, that's another thing that you have to address to get the athlete prepared. Some athletes, they're pumped up enough in competition, but they're not necessarily pumped up enough in practice. And then the reverse is true for, for the other athletes. Like, hey, you're, you're basically swimming meets in practice right now, but then you don't leave anything on the table for when it's time to come to competition. You know, maybe the intensity, the stroke rate, whatever you're doing here is too much and we can mm -hmm. back that down or you know, what are you saying to yourself? What is your internal right. dialogue like? How are you framing these situations? And as coaches, we actually have to take the athletes through that and call it out. Like I tell my kids all the time before we have to do something that traditionally scares them or worries them. I said, look, you got this negative critic that's sitting on your shoulder and it's talking into your ear and it sounds a lot like you, you know, but it isn't you. It's a part of you that shows up in these moments. You actively have to tell that thing to shut the, you know, what up and get focused on breaking this down in its pieces. Don't mm -hmm. try to eat the steak all in one bite, right? Let's break it apart. You've got this part of the race that you got to handle, then here, then here, then here. 
Cause yeah. then it's not as scary for a person like that. You know? Right. I, I think, I think if you feel like as an athlete, you have to repress that voice you know, in, in the way I see things is it, pre, it perpetuates the existence of that thing because you're not dealing with it. You know, and if, if I look and speak, you know, to any of the athletes that I've ever worked with or um, in college, you know, it boils down to a fear. You know, some people don't have that fear. Um, some people develop that fear later. Some people just have this innate fear of failing, of not being successful. So, you know, to say to them, well, don't feel that way. Or, you know, I just, this is a really important race. I don't want you to think that right now. I want you to focus on being happy. Well, you know, it's just, you're asking them, it's like somebody that always writes with their left hand. Well, now write with your right hand. Well, you're innately doing something. And now you're asking somebody to, to suppress or repress that something that's just been innate for ages. And for me, it's like, instead of repressing it, can you accept a worst case scenario? Now, don't get me wrong, as, as any coach out there, you don't want a worst case scenario for any athlete. Correct. You want a best case. You want them to win. You know, maybe winning is just to be, um, just have the best performance they can have. Maybe it's not winning gold, but maybe it's a new PB or, you know, whatever it might be, if we can address as, as coaches and, and athletes, well, what is the source? What is the source of this? You know, and maybe it is fear. Maybe it's fear of losing. Maybe it's fear of being humiliated or embarrassed and whatever it is. It's like, you know, when you can say to an athlete, okay, well, walk me through the worst case scenario, the absolute worst case scenario. Well, you know, maybe I slip on the blocks and I fall in and my goggles break and, you know, and I finish last and people look at me and they're laughing at me and it's, okay, well, can you sit right now and be okay with that? If that happens, can you really authentically be okay with that? Right. Well, uh, no, I don't. But then that's always going to plague you because that fear is always going to be there. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a figment of reality that you're creating that is just as real as you know, I'm not going to slip on the block. Or I'm going to have an amazing start. I'm going to have a beautiful breakout. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to come out of the blocks, whatever it is, whatever sport you're doing it. But you are creating this image in your mind, uh, either negative or positive, usually positive, because as human beings, evolutionary we wise, we've had to be focused on the things that plague us, our fears, because that allows us to continue to exist. If we were like, oh man, this is the greatest beach possible out there. And you're just focusing on all these positive. Well, you're probably not going to be around super, super long, you know? So I think it's important. I don't want athletes to perform badly, but I want them to be able to be in a place where they can accept the worst performances because that opens them up. I've, re I've visited that. I'm okay with that. Do I want that? No. But you know what? There's a certain amount of freedom that comes with that acceptance. So just in my view, if I'm telling an athlete, don't accept that, don't accept, just repress it, push it to the side right now. You know, it's like if you were, if, if I'm in a big room and I just keep on sweeping dirt into a corner, that dirt just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The trash just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because you're not dealing with it. What you need to do is, you know, what, what I recommend doing is just, just dealing with it accepting it because when you accept it and you accept everything well, what happens if this happens i'm okay with that 
I don't want it. I'm going to do everything in my power not to make that happen. That really, in my opinion and belief, opens you up to possibility. And all of a sudden, you're competing from a place of what is possible versus what I'm fearing. That's amazing stuff. Um, amazing. I love it. And uh, I'm going to be taking that forward with me as a coach. So that, that just, <laughs> that made me better as a coach. One of the things um, to piggyback a little bit off of that, and I, it's not going to be as, as eloquently said, but I've had young, younger athletes who are like, Oh my, you know, I'm very afraid. It's not the negative voice in the head, but I'm very afraid. I'm very mm -hmm. fearful. And one of the things they said is like, well, that means it's important to you. Right. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And so I'm like, so use it as fuel, you know, and I tell them all the time it's fuel use it. It will get you amped up. It matters. And one young lady that worked really well for, you know, and, and she wrote about it later. And one of her things as she was graduating, that that really changed her perspective on that fear component. It's like, it just matters to you. You're feeling this not don't have. And my wife said this to me too, because I was, you know, having a, I don't know, it was like a conference where it was really important. I was going to talk mm -hmm. to a lot of coaches and, you know, it was, you know, it, was, it mattered to me. And she's like, and I'm like, man, I'm really like, feeling funky she goes ryan she's like think about when you competed this is right. the thing you're feeling it's just now you're talking and you're amped up think about this is like you're about to go on stage but you have to talk into a camera to like 100 coaches on a zoom it's just different but you're about to go on stage and think about how you felt and i'm like yeah my wife is right she's telling me everything i tell my athletes all the time it's the same thing it's like this is this is not something to be afraid of it's no. something to welcome, as you said, it's just, it's just so powerful. And I mean, man, that, that's inspiring. Yeah, it's such a blessing to be in a position to feel something like that. And, and over time, we develop this association that is, you know, in large part negative, right? You know, the, the human brain is designed to predict and protect right. why we have evolved as a species. Um, you can look at it evolutionary wise, and you can look at us running away from saber-toothed tigers and what have you many, many years ago, but that still manifests itself today in our level of fear. And, you know, I, I, I really wish I'd known all these things when I was, you know, 20 to, to 30 competing right. and because I really believe I, I would have been an athlete, better athlete, a better person. Um, but yeah, can we change our associations? And exactly like you say, it's those nerves are, it's a beautiful blessing to be able to feel that and experience that because, yeah. you know, there is a fear, there is an importance in this. Um, but yeah. when you exactly, like you say, when you can approach it from, man, this is great. This means this is important to me. This means I'm excited. You know, that's our body priming ourselves up to perform instead of, Oh my God, I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. Okay because nervousness is always associated from with most people in, in a negative connotation. So yeah, well said, beautiful. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, the hashtag pressure is a privilege, right? That you have the privilege of being here. Very few people get to feel this. Very few people get to know what this is like. Enjoy this feeling, enjoy what this is about, you know, and yeah, it's, it's awesome. So now kind of rounding up here, talking about the, the sport, in general, the world of sport. I know that you've discussed 
getting involved as the Minister of Sport for South Africa. What's drawn you to kind of raising your hand and putting your interest out there? And what do you think we can do to really maybe, you know, strengthen the opportunities for all these great and wonderful, terrific athletes that are currently competing and going to compete in the future for South mm. Africa? Yeah, South Africa is very, you know, it's a very politicized system. Uh, the government is involved at all levels. So whether you are the Swimming Association of South Africa, you know, you have to answer to the government. So it doesn't matter who you are. Um, so a lot of it is really political appointees in, in various positions. Um, people that have never been athletes, that have never done sport, uh, they might have done it in high school, but they've never really, you know, thinking about the ministers of sport, the last several ministers of sport in South Africa, they, they have no understanding at the fundamental level of being a professional athlete or even a high level athlete of any kind and, and what it takes to succeed. So, you know, when it was really more of a, a comment out of you know, our, our previous minister of sport in South Africa had spoken to, you know, on Twitter about how he'd done so much in his tenure as, as a sports minister of South Africa to get the athletes money and support. And, and I remember that he didn't do a thing. I had to keep on begging for, fun, for funding, for, you know, ways to get to meet. We'd have to pay for all these things in, in, in trying to be up, you know, trying to be the best that we could. And, so it really was in response to that comment. And I was just like, you know what? The people in positions right now in South Africa, especially in the world of sport, they don't understand what it takes to perform. They don't understand what it takes to prepare. Um, so it, it really was for me, well, if these guys have the job, why not me? And so it really was based on that, that I submitted the application to the president of South Africa and and like I say, I, I didn't for one minute really believe that I would be awarded it. Um, have I earned it? Do I deserve it? I think, yes, in many ways. Do I understand the way politics work? No, absolutely not. Do I understand the way sports works and performance works? Definitely. Do I think that we'd be in a better position if we had somebody that understood that side of things? Absolutely. So whether that's me or whether that's somebody else with that capacity and that knowledge and that understanding, I think we'd be in a better place. Is there a lot to learn about politics and, and the administ um, admin side of things? Definitely. Am I open to doing that? Without a doubt. So for me, for the athletes in South Africa, the, the, can we set up systems that help foster their development? Um, Obviously, apartheid was a really big thing in South Africa, and there were a lot of people that were, were significantly disadvantaged. We have a largely black population in our country that didn't have swimming pools, did not have tracks. They still don't because the government promises them, well, we're going to build this, that, and the next thing, and they still don't have it. So for me, it's absolutely heartbreaking to think that there are kids, not just in South Africa, throughout the world that maybe the next greatest athlete, swimmer, tennis player, whatever it is, but will never have the opportunity in their life to hold a tennis racket, to kick a ball, to run. To, to me, that's heartbreaking. And just to, to think how fortunate I was and am to have had 
a backyard swimming pool, to have gone to a school that had a pool um, and swim program and to have been able to do all the sports that I did and to have had parents that bought me cleats and what have you. I was super, super blessed. And if we have systems in place, you know, not just obviously in South Africa, but that can help with more of that, help get more people into sport, man, like that's the way we're really going to produce more champions. So as, a, as a country, you, know, you think about all the champions that we have produced over time, not just swimming, but various other sports. Our rugby team is continuously one of the best in the world. Our cricket team, our track and field athletes, we produce so many amazing champions. So per capita, our ability to produce is significant with the limited resources that we have, even better so. So I, I think I know coming from a really, you know, small swimming pool and, you know, not having all of the things that the American kids have that I saw, there was a certain amount of fight to me. It was like, I'm doing this in spite of everything. And I think that builds a huge amount of tenacity and a huge amount of grit in a lot of South African athletes. It's, you know, if you put those athletes in a system like you have here in the U.S. with, you know, well, you have all your meals catered for before workouts, lunches, dinners. You have this amazing weight room with state-of-the-art facilities, a swimming pool that's just 5 million, 6 billion, whatever, whatever it is. You know, if, if you put a, those athletes into this system, well, I'm sure you've experienced it builds a level of complacency in some. So will there be some that significantly benefit? Yes. Will there be some by virtue of the fact that you take them out of that, that don't? Definitely. But it's, you know, I, I just, for me, it's being able to identify talent, being to be able to put athletes, um, and athletes is a general term. I don't just mean track and field, but people into a position where they have the opportunity to try whether they gravitate towards music or the arts, whether they gravitate towards soccer or whatever it might be, but at least they have the opportunity. For me, I eventually chose swimming, but I had the opportunity to do five, six other sports and, and do them well. Yeah, I, you know, there's the, the line where people talk about hard times makes hard people, soft times makes soft people. But I think there's somewhere that, you can bridge the gap between the two and find the, the best of both worlds so that most people, most of the time can maximize most of themselves. And I think yeah. in sport, that's really, really important. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I look at the, the output of what South Africa has been able to do in spite of all of these things. And there is mm -hmm. kind of a badge of honor that comes with like, well, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to be successful anyway. I'm going to be able to, to do things that very few people in the entire world can do without some of the necessary things that need to happen. But to maximize what we're trying to, to do for the sport, we, we've got to get a lot of opportunities to a lot of people so that they can pick their path to wherever they want to go to be successful. And then hopefully they're nurtured by good coaches over a period of time and they take responsibility for themselves to be great. I think that that is where we want to go. So with one last question for you, because you've been giving us so much value, we've, we've been talking here for you know a good hour and a half and I super appreciate it, Roland. If you're going to look at the sport of swimming in general, where in 10 years, 20 years, 
would you like to see the sport of swimming be? What would you like to see that's better? What would you like to see that's improved? And what are your hopes and dreams mm -hmm. for the sport of swimming in general? Firstly, you're you're more than welcome. I'm committed to you know being on this podcast with you and happy to spend the time with you, whether it's an hour or an hour and 30 minutes or hour and 31 minutes, however long it may be. Um, it really is a conversation and I, I don't think you can put a time limit on a conversation. It's, I mean, I guess you can, if it's a date and maybe it's not going well and, you know, it's like, peace out, I'm out of here. But, you know, when it's with like-minded individuals and you're discussing things that are you know, thought provoking, I think it's important. It's important conversations to have uh, in, in terms of swimming. I feel like we, there is not enough data. Um, if you look at force profiles, it's, we are limited. You can't take anything electronic into a swimming pool. I mean, right. we know that, you know, so to really be able to, to analyze the, you know, our outputs at points, it, it really is limited and has been far more expensive for a lot of people. Um, I, I think being able to to improve upon that, I think to be able to improve the underwater analysis side of things, um, we we understand the fundamentals. Um, we we have so many different training philosophies and beliefs, and and I think that's that's great. Um, I, I do feel like now as the younger coaches start coming in, they is going to be less of the the belief that I need to train kids the way I was trained, but maybe more of the sense of I'm going to train athletes the way I was not trained that I know would have benefited me. Um, so with technology, the way it is with um, the openness and willingness of coaches to exchange information, I think there is going to be less of this polarizing viewpoint and this myopic um, way of looking at things and coaches are really going to take in more information um, and be able to draw their own conclusions and create their own models. So that's, that's my hope. And I think we, we are seeing it, but where I'd like to see us in, in 10 years time is, Oh, I got, I mean, I, I, uh, if I, I don't even know, I'd like to in 10 years time, I'd like it to have exceeded what my thoughts and opinions would have been of where it is. But I, I think the being able to understand the data just a little bit better is going to be important. It is going to be critical to understand, okay, well, how high should the elbow be? How straight should the arm be? Um, how much rotation do we really need? Um, how still can the head be? How still should it be? How much relaxation does there need to be? Um, buoyancy profiles, you know, how it's just there's so much to it and we all know keep your head in alignment you know have a high elbow catch but there's not a lot more than that that a lot of coaches know about um, i think the the best coaches out there really do understand more to it than that um, not only that but can we look at things holistically can we if we're spending you know, 60 hours training a week. I mean, that's excessive, obviously. But I mean, as, as a collegiate athlete, you're not supposed to be training more than 20 hours a week. But I mean, when we're training our bodies 20 hours a week, like you said, if you're seeing an athlete two hours a day, they're uh, 
what are they doing the other 22 hours? You know, are they recovering? Um, beyond that, it's, yeah, I, I, it's a tough question because I, I really don't know. It's just like, once again, I, I don't know what I don't know. And in, I'd like to be able to sit and have a conversation with you in a year from now and be like, man, I didn't know that. I should have approached that. So I think maybe it's just a, a real openness and a willingness to learn and understand and, and look at things. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just for coaches to stay open, to stay, uh, you know, to have the opportunity and the ability to interact with other coaches and to always question, you know, from a place of, of love more than anything else. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it doesn't need to be anything more than that because, you know, once again, if you're focusing on that process, those results are going to take care of themselves at the end. Awesome. Wonderful words, wonderful thoughts. I agree. The more that we can be open-minded, the more that we're willing to be okay with not knowing a lot. Like I think that's the evolution of athletes and coaches in general is at first you think you probably know more than you do. Then you realize how much you don't know and it scares you. And then you become comfortable with like, Hey, I, I don't know a lot, but that's kind of fun because now I'm free to explore and, and question and be curious and exactly. be okay with that. And that, I think that evolutionary process for us as athletes and coaches is what really separates great coaches and, you know, good coaches. And then coaches who are not so good is your willingness Definitely. to do that for sure. So if people want to follow you, if they want to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, all the various social handles. Um, it's just Roland underscore Skuman, um, S-C-H-O-E-M-A-N. Um, on Twitter, just Roland Skuman. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm really good about responding to most people. So if anybody wants to reach out, whether it's uh, anything, questions, you name it, um, I'm always eager to help and assist. Awesome. Well, to the listeners, make sure we share this out. This is a unique conversation for us. I know we've had American football people. We've had strength and conditioning people. We've had a lot of track and field people. This is our first conversation with swimming. It was eye-opening for me. And I think if you guys are really curious coaches and you're in other sports, think about how you can connect the dots from what we talked about today and all the things that relate in terms of exploration and ideas and what we don't know and the things that we do and how we put training together and the idea of not getting so locked into this is how I do things and this is the way that I do it. Be more open to understanding what you're doing and explaining it to your athletes. All of these things are great. The mindset of being able to be comfortable with the possibly worst case scenario and allow yourself to be free. All of this has been great value. So to the listeners, remember, be smart, be safe, make good decisions, take care of yourself. We love you. Peace out.